0: Good morning. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, we'll be there. I'll also have it on the screen, so it'll be there also. Starting a new series called The Whole Truth, and I want to show you something from uh, a few days gone by for me. I'm going to show you. Um, It's a bomb. It's a specific kind of bomb called a GBU-12. GBU means guided bomb unit. This is a precision guided munition. It follows a laser. So if you see the very front, it looks like a tiny little rocket ship up front. That's a a seeker. The bomb itself is uh, the middle, probably the middle half of the bomb that has that slight curvature. That's the bomb the third in front, that section in front is really just a guidance kit. And then in the back is a fin kit. That the stabilizers come out. And when you drop this bomb, it, uh, if, if it has the laser code dialed in, it'll follow a laser down towards a target. Uh, And it uses a form of guidance called bang-bang guidance, uh, which is really just an engineering term. It's not a military term. Bang-bang guidance means it's sort of a binary way of thinking. It's a very simple way of processing where the, the seeker, the little sensor head up front is, it's either on or it's not on. And in... The reality of that for a bomb that's falling is, is when it's on, it will correct the bomb's flight path back towards the laser. Uh, and completely, it's 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 not ever going towards the target; it's going towards the laser. So it does a hard overcorrect, and it comes back towards the laser, and then. It sees it's passing the laser and does a hard overcorrect and corrects back to the laser. And so what you end up getting is sort of this, this cycle, this dampening curvature towards the target. I'll show you a, a picture here. Actually, this isn't it. This is for me mostly. <laughs> uh, this is uh, a rendering. I'll actually go back. I'll show it to you on the jet. And They're in between the main gears, So there's you can see three of them. That, that's how they sit on the airplane. <sighs> okay, now you can go. <laughs> Thing of beauty. Okay, uh, the targets on the ground. This might you might think is the most direct flight path for the object, but um, a GBU follows a, a flight path more like this because of this kind of this style of guidance, where it's always correcting back hard towards the laser. So you would think to yourself, well, why not just point at the target? Why not just, that would be like proportional guidance, just gradually head towards the target, and that's great. It's a much more sophisticated kind of guidance system. So we can do that, it's just, you can't, it's expensive. This kind of guidance, you gain simplicity, but it comes at a couple of other costs, the first cost on a guidance system like this is you need to impart a lot of energy to the weapon because that that curving experience costs energy. And if you don't impart enough energy to the munition, it will fall short, maybe well short. So it's the first cost. The second one is that in a guidance system like this, when... If it's to malfunction, the result is not that the bomb lands a few more feet away from the target. Like if you imagine a fin locking or the sensor breaking at some point in the flight path, you just imagine, because the flight path is never actually towards the target, if something goes wrong, the bomb will land not close to the target, but maybe a half mile away from the target. If you got like a, a a fin lock or something like that, so it's it's a it's it's an interesting kind of guidance because the goal is precision, but the correction is never actually accurate. It's dampening itself out all along the way. So I've chosen to use this example. Uh, because of the seriousness, of the co- the consequence, the weight of consequence that it conveys, just to think about this topic has a sort of heaviness that if something's going to go wrong, uh, the consequences could be dire. And I want to take—I actually want to take that feeling uh, across subjects and into. Th- into the notion of our Christian life, into the notion of the gospel. And just think with me for a second, if you can just imagine, just translate a little bit and think about your own life and your own walk towards the Lord. I'd like to say that you and I were sophisticated enough in our maturity that the Lord could just show us the path in which to walk and we would just get in it and walk straight towards, straight into the kingdom of God. That it was that simple, but it's not simple. It's hard. And if you're at all like me, rather than just walking the straight and narrow, straight to the kingdom of God, I zigzag across the path. I frequently find myself uh, correcting back towards what's right and finding I've overcorrected or finding something else on the other side of the kingdom of God that dampens me out a little bit and I turn and, and so that, like you, I think many of us uh, have this meandering way towards God. But I want you to imagine, what if, in one of your corrections, what, what if in that case there was some element of the truth of God that was helpful in correcting you back towards the path, but by itself, it's not the whole story, by itself, it's just a fragment of the truth. So that really, at one hand, it serves to, because you're off course. So in on one hand, it's serving to bend you back towards the path of the Lord. But in another hand, unless that itself is eventually corrected, it's going to take you across the path of God somewhere else. Can you imagine, at least in theory, that, that there's times, there's things in the Bible. I mean, it's a big Bible. There's a lot of truth. It's a great kingdom. It's hard to grasp all of it. Can you imagine that there are things that might come, come to play in your life that are healthy to make you correct back? but not really putting you back on the course necessarily. This is what I want us to think about. I've called this series The Whole Truth because something's happened over the past month. Just It was odd. I wasn't planning this. Uh, it just happened. That over the past month, I've encountered four, what I would call, half-gospels uh, among our fellowship, among you. Someone has said to me, A half gospel. And when I say half gospel, what I mean is is everything they were saying was correct. They just weren't saying enough. Everything they were saying was accurate, but it was not holistic. And in encountering these things, the impression I got was if this message is allowed to, if this if we think that this half gospel is the whole gospel it will do harm. It will pull us across the path and hurt somebody, either oneself or someone else. And so this, this what I'd like to do over this month is just address four half-gospels that have... They, weren't, they didn't come out of teaching. This didn't happen in an academic environment. This came out of conversation in the living, in the doing of the God, of kingdom of God. And... We're going to talk about them. But I've worked hard to lift them out of their context a little bit so that uh, they're a little bit more broadly applicable and honoring of the person who said them. Uh, and if you're wondering all along the way, was it me who said that? Like now those of you who've seen me in the past month are like, oh man, like <laughs> why don't you go back on your day planner, right? Relax, relax. For one, one of the four is me, Okay. And if we're all humble enough, I think we're all, we all could at least entertain the fact that maybe we're living with fractional gospel frequently. So if it feels like you, rather than saying, I think that's me, I would rather you say, I think this is also me, okay? And, and just know that uh, it's also me. So um, anyway, I'm emotionally connected to this whole series because it happened here. And we want, to be, we want to have the whole truth. Okay, so with that said, we're going to look at this truth, uh, this first half truth. And to do that, I want us to look in uh, the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. And the scripture is going to be on the screen. I'm going to read it. And we're going to do three and a half verses today. I'm going to read it, and then then we'll work through it. Galatians 3, verse 10. Paul, the apostle, writes, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And I want to stop there. Paul wrote the letter to, of Galatians to churches that occupied a region of what is common now you would think of as the country of Turkey. The region was known as Galatia. And Paul, you could think these were the churches that Paul planted predominantly in his first missionary journey. When Paul came to this area, the first time he brought peace with God and freedom through Christ to churches and peoples whose basic worldview, their basic worldview sounded roughly like this. Their spirituality was superstition. It was amoral. And it was pluralistic. When I say superstition, I mean the driving force of most of their spirituality was uh, using the divine to uh, rearrange their life. It was circumstantial spirituality. I need something, I go to the gods to get something. I want to manipulate something in my life, I go to the gods to appease them so that something might be manipulated. Okay, that's what I mean by superstition. It's amoral in the sense that the prevailing spirituality did not really levy on the adherent ways to live or ways to behave or rights and wrongs. That was, it sort of sat back in the cultural mores of how neighbors ought to treat neighbors. That was a cultural concept, not really a religious concept. And it was pluralistic, meaning that there was a wide, wide degree of freedom as to which God you chose to follow versus which God I chose to follow. There was, there was just tons of freedom on that because after all, it's just superstitious. And it's not really moralistic. This is, we should identify with all this, by the way. These are the people that Paul reached with the gospel. And through that, he brought them freedom from sin and victory in Christ. Well, things were going pretty well, except for the fact that a faction showed up in this region, a half-truth kind of faction, and they were strongly committed to the law, the Jewish law, what they would call the law of Moses or the Torah or the law. Their life was focused on the law. Their relationship to the Lord was viewed through the law and the way they justified their relationship with God was by the law they relied on the law for that on doing the right things and this is what brings up the half truth today is this is the half truth pertaining to the question of righteousness how is it that you and I are righteous this word righteous How do we think of that? So to the question of how do I bring pleasure to God? Someone in this faction would say well I bring pleasure to God when I do the right thing. Or to the question of how is peace with God found? They might say well peace with God is found in obedience. Or what can be said about me when I do good or evil? A person of this faction might say, when I do good, I am closer to the Lord, and when I do evil, I'm farther from God. Or if we were asked, what does God think about me? Well, they might say, well, it depends on how I've been. Or to the question of, on what is my hope reliant they might say, well, our hope is reliant on how we have been before the Lord. And Paul's going to push back against this. And in his writing here, he's going to push back, and as you might have already heard or seen, he quotes the Scriptures quite a few times. So three times, and three and a half verses he's going to quote the Scriptures. And he's usually drawing from the law. So two of the three are from Deuteronomy, which is the categorical example of the law. And the other one is from the prophet Habakkuk. And so he's going to respond to this sort of half truth. He's going to push back on it with the whole truth. And here, let's walk through it together. And then we'll, we'll reflect a little bit for our time. Verse 10, he writes, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. And then he quotes scripture. To rely on the works of the law, he says, places you under a curse. You're cursed. The actual real righteousness, for you to actually be really righteous, is unattainable. It cannot happen. You cannot do it. I can't do it, and you can't do it. None of us can actually. Be righteous. You know how Jesus ministered to this? He ministered to this in his life of ministry by making true righteousness seem preposterously distant. He would say things like this It's written, you shall not murder, but I say, if you've cursed somebody in your heart, you're guilty of murder. Or, it's written, you shall not commit adultery, but I say, if you've looked on another person with lustful eyes, you're guilty of adultery. Do you see what he's done? He's saying, don't even try to rely on your righteousness to justify yourself because you're not. You can't. There's one occasion where a rich man comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus, after asking him what he means by good, he goes on to say, well, what about the law? If you follow the law? And the, and the man says, I've kept and busy to keep all the tenets of the law. To which Jesus replies, well, then just give everything you have to the poor and follow me. Now this teaching is not about money. This teaching is about exposing someone's false view of their own righteousness. That's what he's doing. To be wholly righteous is to be wholly gods, and he's not. There'll be a day where the Pharisees, Jesus tells them one day when the Son of Man is seated on the throne judging all the nations, people just like you, when I choose not to see you or not to accept you or when I judge you, you're gonna say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and didn't we do that and didn't we do this and didn't we do that? And to which the Lord is gonna reply, depart from me for I never knew you. Notice he doesn't say depart from me because you didn't do that. They did do that. They did the things that they said, but they're not righteous in them. Verse 11, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous live by faith. He says, righteousness is not found by adhering to the law. Rather, we look to faith as our hope. We rely on God for life. Faithfulness in God is our hope. That's what he says. Doing acts of righteousness equals, I mean, if you're pursuing righteousness through labor, then doing the acts of righteousness equals relying on yourself. If faithfulness is your path, if trusting in God is what you're doing, then that equals relying on God for his work. That's what Paul says. He says, in fact, No one's ever been considered righteous by doing the acts of the law. Rather, God deems people righteous based upon their faithfulness to him. Living by faith. I will be known as righteous through my firm reliance on God. That's what he's saying. Verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. He's saying, listen, the law and the faith are different. The law, following the law, suggests a pursuit of self-reliance, which we know verse 10 is crazy, because why in the world would you rely on yourself since you can't actually be righteous? He says, pursuing the law and faith are different. Now, you can pursue the law and have faith. So it's worth watching, right? You could approach the subject of peace with God by relying on your own doing. You could have a bankrupt hope that doing something will bring approval from God even as you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. You could believe in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all those things, but what you're actually doing in your life Could be bankrupt. Don't confuse yourself. If approval before God is somehow connected to self reliance, you're cursed because you're hopeless in that path. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Paul would say, The truth is, we are cursed. He'd say, Let's be honest about it. All of us stand unrighteous before a holy God. But he'd say, Here's the good news is that we've been redeemed from this curse by Jesus, who is actually righteous, has become a curse for us. That's our hope. That's the good news of the good news. Leading up to it is, is true, is just true understanding, which makes the good news good. He has taken our sins upon himself and has become a curse for us. That's what salvation is. This is the basis of our faithfulness. We rely on him. There's a flow here. Sort of a flow in this gospel. It starts with an awareness of one's unrighteousness, and then that is met with sort of a desperation of, of, well, then there's really no hope for me in relying on myself, which is met with the notion a new hope, which is faithfulness in the work of Jesus. And in this picture, I want to talk this morning about a half-truths that come in and endanger us. I'll give you the first one. So each week I'm going to try to grab two half-truths that are sort of in broad opposition to one another, sort of opposite extremes of the same concept. So here this morning is opposite extremes of the question of what is righteousness and who am I in this, okay? Here's the first dangerous Half-truth. And when I'm saying half-truth, I'm saying everything I'm going to say to you is true. It's just not enough truth. The first one. Shame and guilt born out of a very clear understanding of one's own unrighteousness. This is a half-gospel. A person whose life is defined by shame and guilt not because of their incorrect understanding of their unrighteousness, but of an incorrect understanding of their unrighteousness. Someone who habitually lives in the gutter at the foot of the cross. They sort of live these statements. I'm so undeserving. I'm so unworthy. I'm so sinful. I'm so unreliable. Those sort of permeate through this person. Not Not because they don't love God, not because they're not attracted to God. In fact, it might be because they're in the shadow of the cross. It might be in light of the cross that it brings out this worminess in them, this just decrepitness in them of, I'm so unlike God. In fact, it's true. It's just not the whole truth. Even when confronted with the story of the cross, a person, a person like this could believe the story of the cross, but they still might respond with, yeah, but I just can't believe he'd save someone like me. And a person like this feels a great deal of humility. So the humility sort of reports to them that they're pursuing holiness. It's a real feeling because it flows from a clear understanding, not an incorrect understanding, a clear and correct understanding of their unrighteousness before the Lord. Some common sources that I have seen that give birth to this, uh, you might understand as Catholic guilt or fundamental legalism. They're opposite sides of the same coin. They can produce in a person a belief that they're following after Jesus even though they still are relying. Somehow they're self-reliant. Their focus is their own behavior. Both of these positions, uh, Catholic guilt or legalistic guilt, doesn't matter, they both hold deeply faithful to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, but nonetheless, because their focus is on the things they've done, that's that's their obsession, Then every time they sin, they feel like, once again, I've crucified Jesus. Once again, I've made a mockery of the cross. Once again, how long is he going to, how long is this God of mercy going to continue to forgive a sinner like me? That's what's going to be alive in them. Which, by the way, that is an incorrect thought. So, up Till this point, it's been accurate half-truths. That's an, that's, that is an untruth. Do you actually think that the Jesus Christ who died for the sins you committed yesterday has not accounted for the sins you're gonna commit tomorrow? Like, if that's true, that's not mercy. Like, if I still have to be aware of when I need to stop sinning by before I, the grace of God expires, if there's an expiration date on the grace of Jesus Christ, that's not true. This is the first half gospel. Now, on the other side, on the other side, the other wild point of correction on the other side of the path of God would be this other half gospel which I would describe as lazy spirituality born from a clear understanding that we are not justified by the law I'll say it again lazy spirituality which is born from the clear understanding that we are not justified by the law in other words, someone who realizes my unrighteousness has nothing to do with the fact that I'm, like, my righteousness is not a factor. Jesus Christ saved me. I'm just saved. Jesus has bought the victory for me. Now you're thinking, well, how can a, half, how can a dangerous half gospel come out of that? That sounds right. That's the point. Half of the whole truth, while entirely accurate, is not enough. Someone who is living a half gospel here might follow a profile like this. An overconfident carnality because of their freedom from the law. Like because they're free from the curse of the law an insouciant attitude towards things of holiness. Like questions about holiness or manner of life seem to them to be... eh, that's not so relevant not so important a person with this half gospel it makes for a people who are sure of their salvation but unmoved to surrender their lives to god you hear that they're sure they're saved but they don't feel moved to hand their life over to God. This profile sometimes exhibits the absence of humility, just maybe a little too much victory, a hands off attitude regarding the manner of life. If you approach a person like this about their manner of life, rather than responding with humility and sort of self-introspection as to maybe what, what about me it may maybe out of order, rather they respond with defensiveness and abrasiveness and arrogance. Who are you to tell me how to live? I'm saved. A person like this, their spiritual interest is often in what else God will do for them. If God saved them, well, what else will God do for me? A lifestyle of a person like this can very closely approximate the lifestyle of their neighbor who has no relationship with God whatsoever. So you can have a person with this half gospel who can believe in the death, the historical death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, And the gospel need for us to lean on him for the forgiveness of sins. They'll say all of that and they'll believe all of that and yet their manner of living will almost identically approximate their neighbor. Because sin's not really a big part of it. Righteousness is not really a big part of it. That half of the gospel doesn't come into play. A person like this might often uh, when things go wrong in their life, and I mean things like uh, a wayward child or a broken marriage, when things go wrong like this, sometimes they're very surprised and spiritually demayed, dismayed as though, what has gone wrong with God? How has God failed me? Because their relationship with the Lord is not really has not really invited him in to deal with issues of sin. It's always held him at bay as a gift giver. He's given me salvation. So when things go wrong, what's going on? What's happened? Because they don't really have eyes to see what God's internally trying to do. If you ask them if they were saved, they say absolutely. If you ask them if their sins were forgiven, they would say, you bet. If you asked if they were holy, they might say, well, the title is conferred to me. Or they might not want to talk about it or they might not have a great answer. Now, both of these gospels, the gospel that's in the gutter at the foot of the cross, It's writhing in one's own unrighteousness, even though they know Jesus Christ has died for them. Right, That half gospel, which accurately and clearly sees half of the gospel. And over here you have another half of the gospel, which accurately and clearly sees the victory that we gain through Jesus Christ. But obviously we're not supposed to have half. God wants us to have all of it. All of it. And the truth is, Satan will use any piece Anything he can use against us for our own demise, Satan will use an entirely accurate half truth to take us down. So, what does both together look like? In here, there's words that I want to say, like words like tension. We have to live in tension, but I'm refusing to use that word. I think what I want to say is, is we have to live in harmony with them. They're not at odds with each other. Together, they're beautiful. We're pursuing a holy harmony of the whole gospel. And this is how it feels and how it sounds. It looks like victory with humility. Someone who has experienced freedom from the power of sin, but is not proud of it. We'll see it in someone else and we'll bend a knee and pray for them. Because they remember When? Or it will appear like someone who has peace with God in the midst of their own imperfection. Something is wrong with them, but they're not scared of God being close to them. They're not scared of God like reaching down and trying to say, no, here's how to tie your shoe. They see their own inability and their own imperfection, but the closeness of God brings peace. Not indictment, peace. It's freedom from shame, even as you have an ever growing sense of how you fall short. To a person who's living the whole gospel, they are progressively learning how they are not righteous. The the list of indictments isn't getting shorter, it's getting longer. Because you're falling in love with a genuinely holy God. But to the person who has the whole gospel, the net effect of that is not an increase in shame. You'd think, the more I realize what I don't know, the more I'd feel stupid. But when the reality is, is, before the Lord with the whole gospel, the more I realize what I'm not doing, the more I fall in love with a Savior. Because I realize he knew all of what I'm just knowing and still died for me. To the person with the whole gospel, they have a deep sense that God's major will in their life, what God really wants to do for them in their life is internal and not external. Because they see all of the work that needs to be done. They see all that isn't. And so rather than praying that God would externally satisfy that need and give me that want, which by the way is just superstition, right? Just Lord, give me, let me manipulate my external environment. That's not the true worship of the Lord. The true worship of the Lord is to stand exposed before him and know that he's the cure to invite him in and let him begin to push things around and stand things up again. A person with the whole gospel approaches the ups and downs of sin with confidence. I can go on with my head up because Jesus Christ died for me. And he didn't just die for my yesterday, he died for my tomorrow. And I know that. In fact, a person with the whole gospel can at last really begin to face themselves, really begin to honestly face themselves because they have a savior who's a friend. That's what it means to live by faith. You know, you have any half of the whole truth and it sounds true and it rings true and you can search the Bible and argue it is true, but it's sharp and it wounds and it kills and it's dangerous. It's dangerous. We want to be people of the whole saving gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you that with a real prayer, Lord. And we lift up those here this morning who have, whether it's through their own lazy attitude of the gospel, of you you gave them the gift of salvation, and that's it. Or whether it's someone who just before you, Lord, in the shade of you feels, just still feels your wrath or your anger or your disappointment or your frown or your dismay. Lord, we just we call that heresy this morning, Lord. We call that a, a dangerous piece of a, a beautiful story. Lord, we lift our very selves up to you. Lord, everyone here knows how we have the ability of taking a half-truth and wounding someone with it. Everyone here knows how Satan can gain a foothold in the midst of partial truth. So, Lord, we ask that you would rescue us with all of your counsel, all of your spirit, all of your help so that through our life, it may take us more energy, it may, but as we zigzag across your path, Lord, we will eventually arrive at your feet and call you friend. Amen.